It's time for Forward Nation Radio. Now here he is, the host of Forward Nation Radio, David Leventhal. Welcome to Forward Nation Radio. I'm David Leventhal. Thank you for joining us for our special post-democratic debate round three analysis. I will focus this entire show on the democratic debate and what it meant and the issues that they were addressing. We uh, will get right into it now. Not a lot of news to report. The news that we do have to report will wait until next week, but that's okay. It can wait because we're not yet at war with Iran by the time we go to showtime here. So why not? Everything else can wait. So let's get right into the debate, which I found to be a remarkably inspiring moment or about 180 moments, so to speak, on Thursday night. The first takeaway, of course, from the Democratic debate is how much it underscores the magnitude of the 2020 election. Because while the people on stage were apparently trying to contrast themselves with each other, the main contrast that came through with this debate, obviously, was the contrast between the people on the stage and the governing Republican Party and its leader, Donald Trump. And the contrast was absolutely remarkable. Because one thing that you could say about this debate, if you watch it all the, all the way through, it was not boring. And in fact, I think it was inspiring. You had 10 candidates on that stage who are obviously better than anything the other side has to offer. Anything in the Republican Party, God knows, including its leader, who they are, whose job they are trying to take. Ten candidates, almost all of whom you could see as president of the United States. I'm not quite willing to go yet with all of whom I could see as president of the United States, but pretty much all ten of the people on that stage I could see doing a pretty damn good job as president of the United States. Some sign of hopefulness, perhaps, for 2020 if we can just get the jackasses out. What was a, I guess, a recurring sign from this debate is how much the Democrats obviously need to unite before 2020 and how much they need to be united for the 2020 elections. How important it will be that whoever who emerges as a Democratic candidate beats Trump and beats Trump handily and takes a whole bunch of Senate seats and House seats with him or her. And as far as I'm concerned, the debate was a really hopeful sign on that front. I thought that throughout the debate, the Democrats, with obviously one or two notable exceptions, the Democrats seemed remarkably united. While, yes, trying to contrast their positions with those of the other people on the stage, what was clear throughout the night was that the real contrast and the contrast that they were trying to point out was a contrast between themselves and their positions and Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Let's hope that that can remain the same for 2020, that whoever emerges will have the full backing of the entirety of the Democratic Party and the Democratic electorate. So with all this unity that was shown on the stage, of course, the New York Times in one of its seems to be a a spate of recent really awful headlines, infamous headline. Democrats joust over health care in a fiery debate. Biden sets off a battle. A reminder, of course, that the media will have to sensationalize this whole election. And in fact, one of the 
obstacles that a Democratic candidate is going to have to overcome is media sensationalism. You know, the same problems that helped Donald Trump get elected in 2016. It's hard to imagine that the right, the Republican Party, and Fox News will allow the rest of the media to be as hard in questioning Donald Trump as they are and were in questioning Democrats. It's hard to imagine that they will not make the same mistake of sensationalizing all the wrong things leading up to the 2020 election. Keeping in mind, as I've pointed out on the show endlessly, the job of media in this country is not to inform people. It is to make as much money as possible, just like every other industry in America. And that is an obstacle that Democrats will face in 2020. But hopefully, as a sign from this debate, they will be on their way to clearing that hurdle. In this debate, I felt that the candidates at times withstood what seemed to be withering cross-examination by the questioners. Starting off with George Stephanopoulos right off the bat, apparently applying for a job at Fox News by essentially reading Republican talking points regarding health care and taxes. Jorge Ramos, a I have long uh, respected and admired, Uh, also seemed at times like he was conducting a cross-examination, like he was an advocate, not necessarily a questioner. That's okay, as long as they keep that up when Donald Trump starts appearing on the stage leading up to the 2020 election. In fact, in in the area of unity, I thought one of the most inspiring moments of the debate, or several of the inspiring moments of the debate, If you had a chance to listen to our show last week on competition, I talked about how I feel that our raising competition and the idea of competition as an unalloyed good has been a big problem in this country. It's something we need to reconsider. Well, I felt that during the debate, many of the nicest moments were those moments where the candidates were praising each other. I think that's in part because I think it was nice that they were praising each other. I think maybe that's my socialist instincts, but I maybe I think a lot of that also is, again, the concern that this party makes sure it pulls itself together in 2020. And maybe they were trying to indicate that they were thinking of doing that. Maybe, of course, they just thought it would play well in Peoria, but hopefully it was a little bit more than that. But before I get into the specific issues in the debate, one last word sort of overarching on the debate The real story, I think, of this debate is, once again, who won the debates. And I think, without getting into the specifics of who did what and who said what, I want to point out that it it seems to me pretty clear, again, that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were the clear winners of this debate. And I don't mean that because if you watch the debate, they were the best, they looked the best, they had the strongest things to say. No, at times they did, at times they didn't. The people looked great at various times. But they won the agenda. They set the agenda. It was remarkable sitting through this debate and watching 10 people vie for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. And for the most part, every one of them speaking like a liberal. Every one of them speaking like a progressive, something that you absolutely could not and would not do for the most part in the Democratic Party up until fairly recently. Even Obama, when he ran, yes, we can, hope and change, and all that other stuff, was somewhat vague and, frankly, somewhat reluctant, not front and center with a lot of liberal policy positions. I felt what really stood out for me in this debate was the extent to which 
liberal policy won right up and down the line from beginning of the debate to the end. So let's get into right now talking about the issues in the debate. Uh, starting out just the way they started out during the show with health care. And let's, I, I'm going to try to explain really what's what's going on, what the backstory is for those who watched it or for those who've just read about what was going on the, with the debate. Because again, I understand most of us don't have the time to put, put three hours into watching the debate. Despite what was for a couple of brief moments a real a, 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 well despite what was the for the entirety a real dispute and at times some fireworks the bottom line is on that stage were 10 people who had very slightly varying ideas or maybe more than slightly varying ideas on how to ensure that everybody in the United States gets access to health care that is what we should be talking about and what I'm going to be talking about in the wake of this debate. Ten people on that stage accepted the idea that everybody in America should have access to health care. That America should join, which country is it? Oh, right. The entire rest of the civilized world in ensuring health care for all of its citizens. Contrast that with Donald Trump and the governing Republican Party, whose main goal regarding health care is to figure out how to take it away from another 20 or 30 million Americans. That's the first bottom line. But let's get into the start. George Stephanopoulos, right off the bat, went right after Elizabeth Warren. Tell me what's going to happen with taxes. Taxes, 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 taxes. Okay. Let's. I'll try to explain briefly what's going on there. I've said this before. What Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All proposal is about is, in essence, taking $2 from voters' left pockets while at the same time putting $3 in their right pocket. The problem with that is most of the American electorate, apparently, in this hypothetical in this metaphor is only aware that they have a left pocket. And by that, I mean the Medicare for all proposals. And I expect somewhere in the heart of every one of those democratic proposals will require an increase in taxes. It will increase government's role in our healthcare system and therefore will require an increase in taxes. And that's what Stephanopoulos doing his best Sean Hannity imitation, was trying to get Elizabeth Warren to say, yes, taxes will go up. Elizabeth Warren, and later Bernie Sanders, had enough sense to know you can't say that. You can't say taxes will go up because Americans are ignorant. And when they hear that their taxes are going to go up, they're going to stop listening. Without being willing to say that the taxes are going to go up, yes, I understand people are saying that Elizabeth Warren was evasive. There's a good reason she was being evasive. And what she believes is absolutely clear, even though she won't fall into the Republican trap and say taxes are going up. What she said, and Bernie came in later and said, is we will reduce health care costs for almost everybody in America, certainly the poor and the middle class people. We will reduce your health care costs and we will improve for most of you your health care. Now, yes, the way they're going to do that is by raising taxes. But at the same time, of course, 
people are not getting health care for free right now. We are still paying for it. And we are paying a whole hell of a lot for it now because we have the most inefficient and costly health care system in the world by a mile. And to change that system will actually put more money into people's pockets. But it will do that by raising taxes. <gasps> that's what you can't say to the American public because that's killed every Democratic presidential candidate who's mentioned it in my lifetime. Vice President Biden started out, I think, sort of strong, the start on health care. It seemed to be strong. They Look at all the numbers. Look at how much money this is going to cost. It seems like a ridiculous amount of money. $34 trillion or something over 10 years. It sounds like a remarkable number. Until Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders got to respond, and without using the word taxes, they managed to point out that this $34 trillion number needed to be looked at with a certain perspective. So, as Sanders pointed out at some point, I don't remember the actual numbers. Yes, $34 trillion over 10 years sounds like an unbelievable amount of money to be spending on health care. Until one considers the fact that we're currently spending $50 trillion over 10 years on health care. And that should be the discussion. You're talking about saving 16 or so trillion dollars in health care over the next 10 years. Now, let's have a discussion about why that's going to happen. Because there's no reason for it not to happen. I was asked this question in class today. How are we going to save all that money? Well, we're going to take out a lot of private insurance company profits. We're going to take away a lot of administration where insurance companies spend a lot of money trying not to cover somebody who might have the nerve to get sick or to take away the coverage from anybody who has the nerve to get sick. We're not going to have insurance company executives making hundreds or tens of millions of dollars a year and getting exit packages when they, when they leave to, to escape prosecution of $1.1 billion knocked down to 300 and something million dollars in the case of William McGuire, as I've reported on before. And the bottom line, of course, is the Medicare for all scares a lot of people. But ultimately, it's where we need to get because our inefficiencies, our unaffordability of health care comes from the fact that insurance companies are draining, so, insurance companies and their wealthy executives and owners are draining so much out of the system. That is why the rest of the world's healthcare system is so much more efficient, so much more cost effective than ours. This is what the debates are for, I think, in the discussion on healthcare, where there was some back and forth, where there was a discussion of which plans were better. This was not Biden's shiny moment because, once again, throwing out that $34 trillion when he knew the context, he knew what the story was, and he knew that that number was completely misleading and was trying to push his more liberal colleagues into a corner. And once again, we had Biden basically doing the Republican Party work for them, auditioning Republican Party talking points in a Democratic debate. Not Biden's shiny moment. Biden didn't do a whole lot better with his probably infamous at this point line. You are with Bernie. I am with Barack. Speaking of Obama's health care plan. 
a line he obviously had re rehearsed that somebody being paid a lot of money as an advisor came up with. It sounds cute. It probably works on a Twitter post. The problem, of course, is it's basically complete bullshit. What's important there, as far as you are with Bernie, I am with Barack, as if the Barack Obama healthcare plan with the be-all and end-all, is that not too long ago, Barack Obama came out in support of Bernie. Barack Obama has come out in support of Medicare for All and wished that he had been able to get there. So here's Biden kind of thinking in the past and thinking a little bit too small. We need to think a little bit bigger now from the Democratic side and hope that people will come along with us because half measures worked with Obamacare. It was an improvement. It was great. It reduced the number of uninsured. But it was a way to get to where we need to go, which is to get rid of that comes from the private insurance companies. Is it true, and people don't want to say during the debate, that some people are going to lose insurance that they like, maybe some premier policies that they may not be able to replicate? And the answer almost certainly is yes. The bottom line is that while the vast, vast majority of this country will be better off and will be doing better, while millions of millions of people will have health insurance who do not, did not previously have it, for some few in this country, we are actually requiring people to make the necessary but selfless choice that what is good for America may actually mean a slight degree of inconvenience for them. Oh boy, are we testing American politics this year. Speaking of testing American politics this year, of course, there was the Pete Buttigieg moment here, not one of his shiny moments. Again, I like Mayor Pete. But his comment that we need to trust the American people on health care, once again, a couple of things. Cut with the pithy applause lines. Uh, cut with the talking points for Twitter. And most importantly, cut with the Republican bullshit. Trust the American people. Let's start with the obvious of trusting the American people. Should we? We trusted the American people when it came to getting fleeced and taking out mortgages they couldn't afford. How well did that go for us? We trust the American people when it comes to investing with charlatans and crooks. We trust the American people to buy real estate from Donald Trump. We trust the American people when it comes to climate, to drive vehicles that don't destroy the planet and build houses that don't destroy the planet. Do we trust the American people and eliminate the police? I don't understand. Just having police in the first place, it seems to me that that is absolutely not trusting the American people. Maybe Ronald Reagan was right in some very, very, very small sense. Trust, but verify we have the police because, yes, we want to trust the American people. But the fact is, there's a lot of people who give us reason not to trust them. There's a system that doesn't work for most American people, such that trusting them or not, when they're put in a situation where they're denied the information they need, they need to make good choices, we cannot expect them to make good choices. You realize who the president is, Mayor Pete, right? And you're talking about trusting the American people? Sorry, that's just kind of a pet peeve of mine. 
But this whole trust the American people thing really bugs the shit out of me. Because I look around at most of the people around me, and even most of the good ones, I wouldn't necessarily trust to have the information to make good decisions about important public policy issues. And a lot of them aren't the good ones. But anyway, that's missing the main point with Mayor Pete's applause line there. Because the big thing is, who the hell chooses health care? Trust the American people to decide? Is, are the American people going out and shopping for health insurance? Because that's not my understanding of how it works for the vast majority of Americans, who, of course, are getting their health insurance, if they get it at all, through their employer. And with not so large exceptions, their employer is choosing the plan for them. So maybe you should say, trust the American employer. It's, I don't know. It's not as noble. It doesn't ring quite as well. I understand on that one, Mayor Pete, you're trying to make some points, but you've got lots of other areas, which I will discuss, many of which I will discuss today, where you can make some really good points. This, this, this was pandering of the worst sort. I don't know which competitive planet you're from, but that planet is not the United States of America. Okay, I know. I just mixed my metaphors there. I think the best line on that, of course, was Elizabeth Warren, who finally came up with the proper response, or at least part of the proper response, and, and certainly the pithy proper response, which is people might like their doctors. People don't like their insurance companies. And with her and Bernie's plan, people will get to keep their doctors. The, the bottom line from the health insurance debate, again, is there was some disagreement in the Democrats, some pretty substantial disagreements when it came to Medicare for All. My expectation is if Bernie or Elizabeth, a Democratic candidate, win in a landslide, they're still probably not going to get Medicare for All. They're still not going to get what they want. That ultimately, whichever Democrat hopefully emerges as the next president of the United States, he or she is going to have to negotiate. I love the fact that they're negotiating from a position of strength. The Republicans take a position that is ultra-extreme and then refuse to budge. That's, that's their negotiating policy. The Democrats' negotiating policy tends to be to take a position in the middle and then start negotiating to somewhere where the Republican Party would have been 20 years ago. I love the fact that all of them were positioning, were arguing from a position on the left, although... Again, I like the Medicare for All proposals that are way to the left. But they're not going to get there. And we're going to end up with a place where we are going to cover all Americans and we are going to improve health care and we are going to lower the overall costs of health care. And we're going to spend a lot of time over the next year and the first year of whoever the next president is figuring out the best way to do that. And we're going to do it all together. Again, the bottom line is I started with getting into health care. Democrats all want to work towards having health care for every American, whereas Donald Trump and the Republicans, and this is what everybody needs to be reminded of coming up to the election, their health care plan consists of nothing other than managing to take it away from 20 or 30 million Americans. But, of course, I wouldn't be complete talking about health care without 
talking briefly about the most memorable and perhaps the most impactful moment of the debate and the healthcare discussion. And that, of course, was the Julian Castro too ready to pounce, too overboard in attacking Joe Biden. It was bad strategy, badly executed. He obviously was ready to point out that Joe Biden was old to try to let somebody else get in there. But just let Biden talk. Just let things play out. You don't have to stand out there on the stage and try to tell him how old he is, especially if you're wrong. And what Biden was basically saying, and he said it artfully at one point, but he had already said before what he meant, which is if you don't have money, we'll get you health care. If you do have money, you will be able to buy into a public system if that's what you choose to do. It really wasn't that difficult. I like Julian Castro. This was not a good moment for him. It wasn't a good moment for him trying to become president. I don't know that it was a good moment for him trying to become vice president of whoever might unseat Joe Biden. The next topic that was discussed was racism. And again, the contrast was not between the people on the stage. The contrast was between the people on the stage and the Republican Party. Ten people on that stage believe that racism is a continuing problem in this country and a continuing stain on who we are and who we have been as a nation. As opposed to Donald Trump, who refers to bigots and racists as his base. The question of dividing people that was asked, I think there was a great response there. This was Mayor Pete did well on this. It's not calling people, it's not calling racists racist that is dividing people. It is the racist who is dividing people. Saying that Donald Trump divides people, saying that Donald Trump appeals to bigots, saying that Donald Trump is a blatant racist is not divisive. Donald Trump is divisive. The question I want to talk about on the racism front that I, I want to spend a few minutes discussing. The, the question of police and the backgrounds of Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, two former prosecutors who had to defend their record of not being tough on the police and, in fact, being tougher than they seem to be saying now on crime, their role in our war on crime and how overboard it went. And I have a lot of sympathy here for uh, Harris and Klobuchar, Senators Harris and Klobuchar. I have a lot of sympathy here because their position as prosecutors, in their position as prosecutors, they are absolutely reliant upon the police. They need to work with the police. They need the cooperation of police. As we've seen many times around the country, including recently in New York, when the police commissioner himself proposed that a murderous cop be fired and lose his pension. The reaction from the police union is, we will burn down the house. We will not cooperate. We will not do our jobs. See how you feel when we stop doing our jobs. Well, this is what prosecutors face every day. I'm not saying that they don't have anything to answer for. But the real story here is, once again, a reminder that the police have too much power in this country. The police have too much power over politicians and the police have too much power over prosecutors. 
A prosecutor is simply not in a position to say to the police, I'm going to be strong on you and I'm going to be tough and I expect better. Because the police will respond by basically ruining the prosecutor's career. And that is a problem. Amidst the wonderful unanimity we saw in that debate on the issue of racism, and it's present as well as it's past, the question of how we rein in the police and law enforcement and border control people that reflect that racism is one that lingers even after the debate and one that hopefully the Democratic president in 2021 is going to have to start to deal with. The next big issue, I'll talk again about the contrast between the two parties, of course, with guns. And here, it would be a shame if Beto O'Rourke's indelible moment from this debate were not the image that lingers in people's minds after this debate. Certainly that it's knocked off the front pages by Julian Castro's less noble moment. It was Beto's best moment in all of his time campaigning in his presidential run, certainly his best moment in any of the debates. When he was asked, would you really take away the assault weapons from people in this country? And his answer was pretty much, hell yes, I will take those guns away. The best thing I could say here is thank God that Democrats are finally showing some passion on the issue of guns. Thank goodness that many other people on the stage commended him for his answer. And let's hope that they will be emulating his his straightforwardness, his fortitude. Maybe let's hope that this is an indication of some weakening, some crack in the NRA's wall and its control over Congress. Because the whole idea that he has to answer a question like that, should people in America be able to walk around with military weapons that are designed to shred the human body that have no use other than for shredding the human body, for going through bulletproof vests for shredding that human body, and doing it with magazines with maybe 100 bullets so you could shred a whole lot of bodies in a short period of time. The fact that we as a country can even be talking about whether taking these out of the hands of some of the fucking morons in this country is really unbelievable. And yes, once again, his indication that one party completely lacks balls when it comes to gun safety. And that's the better party. At least that party has some interest in doing something about gun deaths if the American people will back it up. The other political party is wholly owned by the gun industry and the absolute crazies it's created. It's so absolute in its position that when Smith & Wesson develops a shoulder-fired missile launcher that can take down commercial jets, the Republican Party, to be consistent with its off-stated position, will have to say that people who live near Kennedy Airport should be allowed to own such a weapon. So, yes, let's take people's guns. And let's have a discussion about saving children in this country and saving lives. And not about the idea that some jackass's freedom is being taken away. He can no longer make love to his assault weapon. Joe Biden came in here and pointed out that the United States Constitution hamstrings our efforts at gun control. Sorry, that's a little disingenuous here, too. Because, in fact, the United States Constitution, up until just a few years ago, did nothing of the sort. 
And the fact that in two cases recently, for the first time in this country's history, a bare majority of the United States Supreme Court ruled that the right to bear arms is an individual right. And that the right to bear arms is one even as a, even to control state regulations of guns. This is new from a five to four conservative majority of the United States Supreme Court that the Republicans stole. And it is another reminder that the conversation that we need to be having next is who's going to pack the United States Supreme Court to make it more fundamentally fair and more fundamentally respect the voting and the interests of the American voters? Who's going to do it quicker and who's going to do it faster? Because we need to talk again about the extent to which the United States Supreme Court is absolutely both lacking, completely lacking legitimacy completely lacking integrity and completely getting in the way of what this country needs to do to move forward. After the Democrats proved their mettle on guns, the next issue that came up with immigration, once again, the contrast was pretty much only with Republicans. Everybody on that stage agreed that immigration was a good thing. All of them agreed that we should be having rules and not speaking out and building border walls, but not preventing immigration. Every one of them believes that there do need to be rules that need to be followed. None of them believe in an open border, as will obviously be Donald Trump's talking point. But every one of them believes in immigration. This was Andrew Yang's best moment. He didn't have a lot of them, but he had a good one here. His moment telling the story about his family and his moment talking about the success of immigrants in this country in business and in starting business. Also on that stage, there was agreement on the fact that we should be humane. The fact that our immigration policy should not include ripping children from the arms of their mothers, should not include letting children and adults die because they had the nerve to try to find a place for their family to live in safety and where they could find a job to support them. Joe Biden, of course, took a amount of heat for the Obama administration's record on immigration. As evidence in part, the Democrats don't believe in open borders. Obama, the Obama administration's record on immigration was enforcement. They enforced more than any prior administration. They threw more people out of the country than any prior administration. What was that all about? Democrats believe in immigration. But it was another indication that Democrats are scared of the right. That Democrats are constantly living in fear of being painted the wrong way by people on the right. Part of my support for Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, not only do I like their policies the best, but it's time for Democrats, as I've been saying over and over on this show, to start showing some effing balls and stop being afraid of Republicans all the time. The response from Biden, were we able to actually say it is, of course, we were really hard on immigration. We were freaking afraid, as is everybody on this stage, probably, of what the Republicans and Fox News were going to say about us if we weren't and what the average American voting ignoramus would do to us. I thought the ways from the discussions on trade and the economy pretty much came down to all I'm saying, well, we'll have a clue. 
Because one thing that's been clear from the Trump administration, whatever we've done on trade and the economy, and even in some places where there might be some basis to act, like in addressing uh, China with, with regard to trade, it is clear that the current president of the United States does not have a clue. But some of the things that I thought were really most inspiring from this part of the debate, again, Elizabeth Warren, I felt that she was right on in her discussions about negotiating trade deals and saying at the table will be unions, small farmers, environmentalists, and human rights lawyers. And Bernie Sanders following up, reminding us that this is the democratic wing of the Democratic Party. The idea that we need trade agreements, but the problem with trade agreements in the past, the the problem to some extent with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a great idea, what the problem with NAFTA, which was a good idea, but these trade deals are negotiated by and for big corporations. And trade deals need to be negotiated by human beings and for human beings and for the planet. And again, that's the important contrast here, not necessarily with the people on stage, but the people on stage with Donald Trump. Cory Booker, I think, was eloquent here. He talked about farmers versus factory farms. We should be supporting the interests of farmers. We shouldn't be supporting the interests of farming conglomerates. Or worst of all, we shouldn't be allowing farming conglomerates to negotiate international treaties for the sake of farming conglomerates. I don't really get what that question was to Cory Booker. Should we all be vegan? That was kind of a lame-ass question here. His response, I thought, was pretty good, which was no. We had a little bit of fun with that, of course, as we said I'm going to give it in Spanish. Uh, I was asked a similar question by one of my students today, which is, are we all expected to, like, give up every... I said, no, the answer is we're all expected to care and we're all expected to do what we can. We're all expected to make an effort. None of us are going to become monks, but we need to work where we can to do our best to make for a better planet. The Democrats, and Cory Booker did a good job here, seemed to indicate that, as opposed to the other side. This allowed Elizabeth Warren a couple of big moments here, not only talking about her main theme of corruption, and how corruption affects everything, including our trade policies, but in fact, to get support from the wealthy entrepreneur on the stage, the guy who wants to give a lot of money to people, Andrew Yang, who supported her on her idea about how much corruption there is. The candidates were asked about climate. Let me just stop there for a second. The candidates were asked about climate. Wow, what a remarkable breath of fresh air that is. Again here, every person on that stage believed in science and believed that we do need to do something to protect the planet as we know it. There undoubtedly are discrepancies in the minutia of their policies. But the bottom line is every one of the people here believes that we need to do something to save the planet, as opposed to the person that one of them will be running against in 2020. And the last issue I really want to talk about before we go today is education, because this is one that particularly hits home to me. And what a remarkable contrast. I went to all my students and said, Just look up the bit where they talked about education. Just read that transcript or listen to that part of the discussion. 
Again, what a breath of fresh air. To talk about how this country need to make education a priority. Yes, I understand. I have a stake in this game. I'm in education. To hear them talk about how teachers deserve raises. Oh my God, I thought I was having a heart attack for a minute. That there seemed to be a consensus on the stage for paying teachers more. The idea, again, a great moment for Mayor Pete. The idea that in other cultures, teachers are revered. But in America, teachers are looked down upon. Because America, of course, worships the almighty dollar. And teachers don't have much of it. You want to start fixing this country? Start by fixing education. Start by paying teachers as if they were Wall Street bankers, and Wall Street bankers as if they were basically worthless shit. Maybe that would kind of fix things in this country and lead some of the best and the brightest to become teachers. I thought it was energizing when they talked about how 70% of kids' influence comes from outside of school. And that, once again, brings us back to Bernie Sanders and his statements correct that we need a revolution. We're not going to be able to deal with all of our problems piecemeal, that we need a real reconsideration, reorganization of how we do things in America. We need to improve the social safety net. We need to help families. It was a remarkably good moment here for Julian Castro, talking about taking it to the next level, talking about the holistic approach to education, helping families. Why the hell aren't there free meals in all of our schools to start out with? And why are kids able to come to school hungry in the first place? The fact that the candidates all talked about communities, the social safety net, early child care. What a remarkable breath of fresh air from where we've been in this country. And I'll give a quick shout out here. I know he's a, he's a favored whipping boy and he wasn't even at the debate. But Mayor de Blasio here. I heard him recently on one of the podcasts I like to listen to. I think Pod Save America. He was interviewed and he had a chance to talk for a little while. And yes, it was worth pointing out that he managed to get universal pre-K full day in all New York City schools and how he is currently, as mayor of New York City, fighting to make sure that three-year-olds get early childhood learning. This is what we call in the trade a no-brainer. We need to start nurturing our young and preparing them to save us in the future. Paying teachers more hearing people talk about public schools. Again, what a breath of fresh air. Hearing Elizabeth Warren say that we need to keep money in public schools rather than pulling them out and putting them into private schools as our public school hating education secretary Betsy DeVos, billionaire Betsy DeVos believes in. And that gives me a few moments once again to talk about maybe one of my favorite subjects where I work, the City University of New York and the extent to which they are absolutely killing the City University of New York right now. It is embarrassing what is going on at my school, and I'm sure the others, my school, Queens College right now. It is an absolute disgrace that there is no money for everything. And the idea at our school, like in public schools across America, is let's take the underpaid teachers, the people we're already abusing, since they have already shown a noble spirit to try to make a difference in the world, well, let's fuck them a little bit more. 
Let's make them bring in their own supplies. Let's make them bring in supplies for their kids. Let's make them do more. Let's take away all their help and all their resources. A country that thinks that it can do this to public education at the grade school level and at the university level is a country that doesn't have a lot longer. If Donald Trump is reelected president in 2020, this country doesn't have a lot longer. This show doesn't have a lot longer because I've gone over and we're done. Thanks for joining us this week. I will see you, I think, in a few days with some more of my thoughts on the most recent Democratic debate. But until I talk to you soon, be well and take care. You've been listening to Forward Nation Radio with David Leventhal. 